0: Law of Self Defense content you are about to enjoy is presented for general educational purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, consult competent legal counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Welcome to our ongoing coverage of the Minnesota murder trial of Derek Chauvin over the in custody death of George Floyd. I'm Attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self Defense, providing guest commentary and analysis of this trial with the gratefully accepted support of Legal Insurrection and CCW Safe. As we enter the 11th full day of trial in this case, the state is rapidly approaching the end of its presentation for its case in chief. We are, therefore, nearing a major inflection point for this trial. For those who may be unfamiliar with the criminal trial process, after opening statements by both sides, the state takes the first turn in presenting the jury with its case-in-chief, meaning its entire comprehensive argument to meet its burden to remove all reasonable doubt on the criminal charges brought against Chauvin. These charges include second-degree murder, really felony murder in this context, third-degree murder really reckless murder in this context, second-degree manslaughter, and third-degree felony assault. That felony assault is the predicate for the felony murder charge, which being called second-degree murder here. A more detailed overview of these criminal charges is discussed in a previous commentary and analysis, which I've linked in the text version of today's content. After the state has finished presenting all the witnesses and evidence that they believe prove the crimes charged beyond a reasonable doubt, they rest their case. And it becomes the turn of the defense to present witnesses and evidence that they believe create a reasonable doubt. The key is that the point at which the state rests its case is normally the high point, the high watermark of the prosecution's narrative of guilt, the point at which reasonable doubt has been eliminated to the greatest degree likely to be achieved at any point in the trial. From here on, the narrative presented to the jury is primarily the narrative of the defense, which is the narrative that drives an increase, not decrease, in reasonable doubt, And reasonable doubt is, of course, the key to acquittal. So this is the high point of the state's narrative of guilt, and by extension, the point at which reasonable doubt should have been eliminated to the greatest degree in the entirety of the trial— has the state really met that burden here? Has reasonable doubt been effectively eliminated? Has reasonable doubt been effectively eliminated here? Has the state met the threshold required for conviction? Because if they haven't done it before the defense even has its turn on the field of legal combat, they're not likely to achieve it moving forward now that it's the state's turn. In our coverage of the state's case in chief so far, I've seen plenty of state's witnesses provide testimony and evidence that could readily support a jury, or at least individual jurors, informing a reasonable doubt on these criminal charges on at least two fronts. Keep in mind, importantly, the state really has to prove two different claims to arrive at criminal misconduct on the part of Chauvin in the death of Floyd. First, the state has to prove that Chauvin's conduct was a significant contributory cause of Floyd's death. That's what would be sufficient for the third-degree murder charge. Even the other charges do not require that Chauvin intentionally killed Floyd. Apparently, not even the prosecution believes this was an act of intentional racist police murder, or we would see an intentional killing charge in this case, and we do not. But I see many in the media reporting as if that's all the state has to do is prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Chauvin's conduct was a significant contributory cause of Floyd's death. If that were correct, a conviction would seem to be at the very least highly possible. After all, the truth is almost certainly that Floyd died not of any single cause but of multiple forces racing together to take his life, his profound heart disease, his dangerous hypertension, his deadly levels of fentanyl complicated by methamphetamine, his decision to forcibly resist the efforts of four police officers to make his lawful arrest, and also, of course, that force used by the police, including the subdual restraint. Surely it's not hard to imagine that the subdual restraint was a significant contributory cause of Floyd's death. At least it could have been, and a reasonable juror might conclude it was, and that it was proven so beyond a reasonable doubt. But does that get us to conviction? The answer is no, because there's a second condition that must also be met in order for that conduct that may have made a significant contribution to Floyd's death to make that conduct a crime. The conduct itself must, in some manner, be legally wrongful. If the conduct was lawful, it can't be the basis for criminal liability, even if it was a significant contribution to Floyd's death. Some simple analogy should illustrate this point. If you're driving your car down the street in a safe and lawful manner, you're not doing anything wrong. And a pedestrian unexpectedly steps in front of your vehicle and is struck and killed You certainly made a significant contribution to that pedestrian's death, but you haven't committed a crime because your conduct in driving in a safe and lawful manner was not wrongful. If a surgeon is desperately operating to save the life of a patient on his table and the patient dies of a combination of their grave illness and the physiological stress of being opened up for surgery, certainly the opening up of the patient made a significant contribution to that patient's death, but the surgeon hasn't committed a crime because his conduct in performing surgery was not wrongful. If a police officer intentionally shoots and kills a suspect, so an intentional killing, which is more than Chauvin is charged with, but he does so under circumstances that are legally justified, the officer has clearly made a significant contribution to that suspect's death. But the officer has not committed a crime because his use of force was legally justified and not wrongful. By extension, even if Chauvin's use of force on Floyd made a significant contribution to Floyd's death, it's not a crime unless that use of force was not justified under the totality of the circumstances. And thus, if the force was justified under that totality of the circumstances, it's not wrongful and not the basis for criminal liability. Conversely, the same is true if the state's rationale for guilt is undue delay in providing care to Floyd, which is one of the several theories of guilt the state has been stirring around in their narrative stew of guilt in this case. Even if the delay in care was a significant contributory factor in Floyd's death, which is not certain, it's not wrongful that delay, and not the basis of criminal liability if that delay in care was reasonable under the totality of the circumstances, including the circumstance of Floyd having been just minutes ago violently fighting for officers, the circumstance of the angry crowd shouting threats of imminent physical violence, the officers having no reason to know Floyd was in such fragile condition due to existing heart disease and hypertension and fentanyl levels and more. So that's what the state needs to have achieved by the point that they end their case in chief, even if we just limit ourselves to the third-degree murder charge in this case and disregard the more serious charges. They need to have proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Chauvin's actual conduct was a significant contributory cause of Floyd's death and that Chauvin's conduct was not reasonable under the totality of the circumstances, given the facts known to Chauvin at the time and in the context of his training and experience. And the state needs to have eliminated any reasonable doubt on both those points in a sufficiently robust manner that it can withstand the next two weeks of defense case in chief every single day with every single witness working to crack open that window of reasonable doubt. As of today, has the state achieved that threshold on both those key issues beyond a reasonable doubt? Because if not, will they, within the next 24 hours or so, before they rest their case in chief, before they've reached what's supposed to be the high watermark of their case against a reasonable doubt? Color me skeptical. In any case, be sure to stay with us today as we continue our live blogging of the court's proceedings in real time over at Legal Insurrection and, of course, with our end-of-day wrap-up analysis and commentary this evening at Legal Insurrection, Law of Self-Defense, and now CCW Safe. Finally, anyone interested in a free podcast version of our daily legal commentary and analysis of the Chauvin trial can access the Law of Self-Defense News and Q&A podcast available on Pandora, iHeart, Spotify, Apple, Google, Simple RSS feed is also available. You can learn more about all the platforms our podcast is available on by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash free podcast. All right, folks, that's it for the moment. We will be live blogging the case all day over at Legal Insurrection, as I mentioned. And of course, we'll have our end of day wrap up commentary and analysis as usual this evening. Until then, I'm attorney Andrew Branko at Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.